I wouldn't panic too much simply because of these numbers. But it does illustrate a, a bigger problem, which is that we have had you know, next to no growth now for pretty much two decades. Um, if you look beyond the headline numbers and adjust for the increase in the size of the population, then output per head actually fell in every one of the four quarters of, of last year. The UK economy has fallen into recession. Today, the Office for National Statistics announced that the economy contracted by 0.3% in the last quarter of 2023, after a fall of 0.1% in the third quarter. The news has already sparked a vicious debate about what it really means to be in a recession, whether the Chancellor should rush ahead with tax cuts in the forthcoming budget, how the Bank of England should respond when it comes to cutting interest rates, and I guess also a longer term debate about what can be done to stimulate growth. Welcome back to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the IEA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question. Today's question, what does it mean that Britain is in a recession? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by Julian Jessup, who's a bit of, a, of course, a regular on the IEA's podcast. He's an IEA economics fellow, an independent economist, as well as a member of the IEA's Shadow Monetary Policy Committee. Welcome back to the podcast, Julian. Thank you, Matt. So I suppose that the first question here is how worried should we be about the economy falling into a recession today? Well, I wouldn't panic, but it's certainly bad news. Um, I think the reasons not to, to panic is that this appears to be a rather unusual recession. I mean, normally recessions are accompanied by you know, high or rising unemployment, you know, falling consumer confidence, um, falling business confidence. But actually, a lot of those indicators are, are actually looking up at the moment. Um, the labour market in particular is still very tight. You know, real wages are rising. Unemployment is very low. So even if this uh, number is confirmed, and it, it, it may well be revised away, it does look likely that the recession is going to be short and, and, and relatively shallow. So um, I wouldn't panic too much simply because of these numbers. But it does illustrate a, a bigger problem, which is that we have had you know, next to no growth now for pretty much two decades. Um, if you look beyond the headline numbers and adjust for the increase in the size of the population, then output per head actually fell in every one of the four quarters of, of last year. And it also, by the way, fell in two quarters of 2022. So we have some underlying growth problem or lack of problem. Um, these numbers are just sort of just emphasize that even more. Yeah, I think it was at least slightly surprising that the extent of this a 0.3% drop as opposed to a 0.1% drop. Now, of course, you can look at this in one of two ways. Um, I think in the first instance, you can probably say, oh, well, this is going to be quite a shallow recession. Um, it, it's, it could have easily been the opposite way. The, the revised six might come out, might turn out we didn't actually enter a, a recession. Um, and, and therefore, there's even some commentary around, does this mean the technical definition of a recession is is wrong in a way or, or needs some kind of updating, that that idea that it should be two consecutive quarters of, of negative economic growth? Well, well, most economists, myself included, don't like this technical recession definition. Um, I mean, it's pretty arbitrary. Um, for example, at the moment, we're in this odd position where the UK is in a technical recession, but, but Germany isn't. The only reason being that Germany hasn't had two successive quarters of, of negative growth, um, but it has had basically a series, a series of ups, downs that have amounted to, to pretty much the same thing. 
Um, there are better definitions of recession. The one that is traditionally used in the US is a is a long period of falling economic activity um, spread across the economy as a whole. And we haven't really seen that in, in the UK, particularly in the labor market. So on the US definition, we probably wouldn't be in recession. Uh, at the end of the day, though, it really depends what this means for sort of ordinary households, if I can put it like that. If you have a recession where GDP is falling, but where, you know, unemployment is low, job security is high, consumer confidence is picking up, then that's not really what I would call a recession. Oh, on, on the other hand, though, I think perhaps the, the right term for the state of the British economy, economy is stagnation. It, it's the fact that uh, based upon the current projections of economic growth over the coming years, we, we could pretty much have two decades of, of pretty low, measly, you know, slightly higher, slightly lower economic growth, but not really when it comes to, I suppose, at least incomes. Um, higher standard of living. Um, I think it's that probably almost that broader narrative of stagnation that that really plays on my head rather than, I suppose you're right, the 0.1% up, 0.2% down kind of focus on the cystics that we're getting at the moment. Well, that, that's absolutely right. There are different ways of measuring this. But if, if you look at what's happened to um, the size of the economy, particularly output per head since the global financial crisis in 2008, um, if we had continued growing at the, the pre-global financial crisis trend, then output per head or living standards, if you like, would now be at least 20% higher than they actually are. So that 20, maybe 25% number completely dwarfs whether GDP is up or down 0.1 or 0.2 in any particular quarter. I think that's the, that's the bigger problem, the, the so-called productivity puzzle that needs to be solved, rather than worrying about these relatively small changes in a number that may well be revised away anyway. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, I'm first, though, want to pick your brains on the other news this week about inflation, uh, which is that we found out inflation would be steady at 4%, which is lower than a lot of the expectations that it might go up a little bit higher. Combined with this news today about uh, the economy in recession, is this a sign and a signal to the Bank of England, despite Andrew Bailey's comments that he wouldn't rush to decrease interest rates, that perhaps the time is to get cutting? Well, I, I think that's right. I think if there is a, a big hope for this year, it is going to be lower inflation and, and, and lower interest rates. I think that should be the, the priority to do everything that we can to make sure that that happens. Um, I'm as convinced as you reasonably can be that headline inflation will be down to, to 2%, maybe lower in, in April um, as the next sort of next off-gen energy price cap is implemented, which means that domestic energy bills should be a lot lower. There are other sort of positives uh, coming into the scene over the next few months as well. So inflation will be sharply lower. Um, on top of that, the the weak GDP numbers mean that the economy is already about 0.4% smaller than the Bank of England was expecting uh, when it did its big forecasts at the at the beginning of of this month or the end of end of January. So you've got a combination of you know, big falls in inflation and a, and a weak economy in the banking that they've been anticipating, which I think has to give the green light for, for rate cuts. Um, I think they'll probably still wait until May. I, I sort of understand that when inflation is twice its target, you need a bit more evidence that it's coming down. But once they do start to cut, I think they will cut rates quickly. So we'll get a double benefit of you know, falling inflation, which will boost real wages, and also falling interest rates as well. So I think Andrew Bailey said this week that, that the reason why the inflation had come down was because of the end of those international pressures, you know, the, the Ukraine war and the 
COVID supply chain disruptions. I'm wondering whether you buy that narrative or if we perhaps should also be looking at the Bank of England's role when it comes to monetary policy. Well, it's a, it's a bit of both. I mean, the two sides of the, the same coin. I mean, the, the, the biggest price increases have been in, in things like energy and food, which have been a consequence of the of the supply shocks that we know from um, the, the global events, the geopolitical events and so on. Um, however, I don't think the prices would have risen as far as they had done if it hadn't been for the, the long period of very loose monetary policy, so very low interest rates and, and money printing through quantitative easing. Uh, that's gone into reverse now as well. So money and credit growth has, has slowed very sharply and, and interest rates are, uh, are up to levels that are, are restricted, in other words, holding back economic growth. So I think it is a combination of the, of the supply shocks fading, but also much tighter monetary and, and financial conditions. And um, to some extent, the Bank of England deserves some credit for that, but then they contributed to the problem in the first place by keeping interest rates too low for too long and printing all that money. So they, they, they get a sort of, partial pat on the back, but not too much. Yeah, I mean, the, the pull the levers in, in all sorts of different and, and contradictory directions with almost predictable results. I mean, do you think this this kind of recession or, or slowdown in the economy was an inevitable consequence of the fact that interest rates had to go up after the COVID uh, and the supply chain and Ukraine-related inflation? Uh, is, is this just kind of to be expected? It's a bit of a shallow recession. Uh, and 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 the logical outcome here. Well, it does seem to be inevitable in the sense that lots of other countries are in exactly the same position. I, I could read out a long list of of countries in in Europe who, by the way, are still members of the European Union, who've also seen at least two quarters of of, of negative growth over the course of of twenty twenty three. Uh, we also learned this morning that Japan is uh, has slipped into recession as well. Actually, a rather bigger recession than the one we're likely to to see in the UK. So. To some extent, this is sort of inevitable consequence of um, of interest rates returning to, to more normal levels, not just in the UK, but also in Europe and and in the US. And also that big shock from from energy prices, uh, which has hit you know, countries that are big energy importers, like most of Europe and Japan, much harder than it has countries like, like the US that are, of course, themselves major energy producers. So uh, a lot of it was inevitable in the sense that this is also happening elsewhere. But undoubtedly, there are some problems in the UK that have made things worse than they, they would otherwise have been. Um, Brexit is often mentioned here. Um, I think that factor is is overdone. Brexit has helped in some ways. Um, for example, I think real wages wouldn't be recovering as strongly if we were still as dependent on cheap labour from the European Union. But it has hurt in other ways. So I think investment and trade are undoubtedly weaker than otherwise have been. Um, but also our response to, to COVID, we're still suffering the the penalty for you know, the second and third lockdowns and the NHS is still in deep trouble, you know, long waiting lists, um, which are causing longer term problems in terms of you know, people finding it harder to go back to work. And so th- th- there's a mix of things. Some of them are UK specific, but most of them is the inevitable global reaction to higher interest rates and an engine crisis. The other big talking point today after this news about a recession is what the Chancellor is going to do in the forthcoming budget. Do you think this news makes tax cuts, I suppose, more or less likely? Well, I think it should make tax cuts more likely, of course, because I think it you know, underlines the importance of doing something to provide a bit more support for demand and also to you know, boost the, the supply side of the economy to, to increase productive potential and encouraging people to work, businesses to invest and so on. 
Um, so I think it, it should increase the case for tax cuts. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned, though, that because of the rather odd mechanical way in which we run monetary policy here, um, it might be thought that weaker economic growth will reduce tax revenues and therefore undermine the, or reduce the amount of room there is for cutting tax rates, which is the classic problem of the doom loop that, that many have identified. So we're always trying to you know, chase the budget deficit by raising taxes to fill the hole. All that does is under, undermine economic growth, and we end up with worse public finances than we'd otherwise done. But um, I think you know, a sensible chancellor would now be looking at some well-targeted tax cuts that can provide a bit of a boost to demand, but also help the productive potential of the economy. I'm interested in what you, yeah, what you think there in terms of the, the purpose of tax cuts are, because it, it almost sounds like kind of like a, a Keynesian logic there for tax cuts, which would seem to fly against the face of particularly uh, what the Bank of England is doing in terms of slowing down the economy and slowing down monetary growth. Maybe that is a matter for the Bank of England, not for the government. I think there, at least in my mind, is a risk of if you just stimulate demand, you're just going to have uh, more inflation. Rather than yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. It's important to be clear why you are cutting taxes, and that helps to determine which taxes you should be cutting. Um, if it's about boosting demand in the economy, then you know you, you focus on uh, the taxes that are paid most by people on, on low incomes, which is, if you like, the, the Keynesian argument. Those people are more likely to spend their uh, savings from, from, from lower tax bills and, and boost demand. And uh, there may well be a case for that, but that carries you know, bigger risks in terms of you know, potentially worrying the, the Bank of England. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's actually more important probably to get interest rates down uh, than it is to boost demand in the economy. Uh, remember, there's already quite a lot of demand boost in the pipeline. So we've already had you know, cuts in national insurance contributions that, that kicked in in January. And then in April, we've got uh, the increase in the national minimum wage. You've got big increases in state benefits and the, and the pension. So it might be that the Chancellor's already done enough on the on the demand side. But there's still plenty you can do on the, on the supply side uh, in terms of tax cuts as well. So... That might, for example, be addressing some of the very high marginal rates of tax that are faced by people, not just poor people, but people across the income spectrum. Um, so there's some things he could do there that would you know, improve the incentive to work and therefore not only boost demand, but also uh, produce, you know, help to tackle the problem of labour supply and get people back to work. So there have also been some reports stated that the amount of uh, headroom that the government has for tax cuts has been cut uh, since the start of the year. That originally office budget responsibility thought the government might have $24 billion to play with, and now it's down something like $12 billion. The reason for that being that uh, the interest rates on government bonds has, has gone higher in the, the, the forward-looking markets, and therefore uh, more has to be spent on interests, and there'll be less available for tax cuts. Is, is this something that's going to be playing very heavily on on the government's mind and should it be well it it probably will but it, it shouldn't I mean, we we've created this fiscal straitjacket where you know really important decisions about tax and spending are based on economic forecasts and fiscal projections that even the obr admits are, are highly uncertain um i mean you gave the example of the the, the recent increase in in government bond yields in other words the the cost of long-term borrowing for the for the government but Against that, we've had some better news recently on energy prices, which should also feed into the equation somewhere. So, um, you know, whether it's twelve billion or, or, or twenty-four billion, it's still basically just a, a made-up number. You know, I would love to see the chancellor be more confident in in making a, a, a big bold uh, 
package of reforms that wouldn't just include, by the way, tax cuts. It would also include you know, something on the spending side, uh, perhaps you know, investment to tackle the, the big problem of productivity in, in public services. But instead, it's basically what you know, this trust, let's say, used to call abacus economics, this sort of, you know, counting out the numbers and coming up with a spuriously accurate set of policy proposals based on a set of forecasts that really aren't worth a lot. The other um, interesting reporting this week was also around government spending plans. So I think in the current spending plans after 2026-27, the government intends to increase public spending by 1% each year in real terms. And there was some reporting the government's considering on the increase in that by 0.75% or 0.5% to create some more, at least, headroom on paper for tax cards. Um, I think the, the general response to that from a lot of economists has been um, that isn't particularly plausible as a plan, that, that demands on public spending will be much higher. And you can't just, I mean, you, you obviously can just tell the OBR that you're getting spending, but it's not actually yeah. it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, it's, it's odd this, isn't it? I mean, You'll remember that one of the things that did for, for Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng was that they didn't publish a, a set of OBR forecasts alongside the mini-budget. Maybe they should have just made up some numbers uh, for public spending and incorporated them in a forecast and, and people would have been happy. Uh, th- there's certainly a, a big problem here uh, for the next government, whether it's a, a re-elected Conservative government or, or a Labour government, that the, the, the medium-term public spending plans simply do not look credible. Uh, and there's a distinct lack of detail around them as well. So the government has basically said, this is where we're going to cap overall spending. But it hasn't produced de- detailed departmental plans for you know, how that spending is going to be allocated or, or how it's going to get you know, spending down given the increasing demand on public services. So and it's another example of how the, the fiscal framework is actually a bit of a farce. Um, we're sort of bending over backwards to uh, to meet fiscal rules based on on, on dodgy forecasts, but an awful lot of the inputs into those forecasts, including the public spending numbers, are basically just fiction. They've been they've been made up. It also seems to me quite bizarre as a method to say, "Oh yes, we want to get down the size of the state," but rather than saying, "Here are the programs we're going to cut," here's where we're going to expect people to take on more responsibility for themselves. Here are a list of things we we don't um, want to provide anymore. They're just saying, "Oh, we're just going to cut by not increasing as much as people expect," or we're just going to do broad based cuts without actually reducing responsibility. It just seems like a recipe for a disaster when it comes to public services, but also kind of weakening the case. If, if you are someone who thinks the state should do less, the state can't just spend less, but not do less. Well, that, that's that's part of the problem. I think whichever way you look at it, the current situation is extremely unsatisfactory. Um, so so last week, as, as people know, Labour scaled back it, its plans for you know up to £28 billion a year of, of so-called green investments. Now, I am, I am very sceptical that, that any of that was really worthwhile. But um, if you accept that it was, then the fact it, it had to be abandoned because of these arbitrary fiscal rules is, is something that people on the left might be worried about as well. Um, for me, though, the, the, the bigger problem and a lot of the reason why we're in the mess that we're in now is, is, is the, the relentless growth of the state. Um, the increase in the tax burden is, 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 is a symptom of that. Um, but I think it goes much beyond that. There's a sort of tendency, it seems now, to, to regulate or increasingly regulate every aspect of the economy as well as our, our social lives and private lives. Um, and that is a recipe for you know continued sluggish growth. Um, and then that worsens the public finances and just reinforces this doom loop of um, 
of taxes having to go up, close the gap, weaker economic growth, less money for public services, more tax increases, and then we go around again. It seems striking to me about um, when Labour announced the end of the, the 28 billion green plan, they didn't actually say that any of their targets or their investment decisions would be substantially meaningfully different. They, they still want 100% green energy by 2030, but now they, they haven't even bothered to say how they're going to pay for it, not that it was necessarily something that they were clear about to begin with. I just want to pick up that that final point here, which you kind of uh, hinted at earlier. You, you've called it the productivity puzzle, um, called it the doom loop that we're stuck in. How do we get out of that doom loop? How do, how do we boost our productivity, get our economic growth going? Because whatever you think of the importance of today, that the last um, 15, 20 years have been miserable when it comes to economic growth, what, what, what would be the policy descriptions to get us out of this mess? Well, I, I, th- I think there should be three priorities. One, one is to, to get investment up. Um, I'm, ultimately, I'm not that bothered myself whether that's investment in the private sector or the public sector. I think it should probably be a, a mix of the two. But most economists would agree that you know, more investment is the, is the key to, to improving productivity. Um, but there are two other aspects. What, one is that there's a particular problem of productivity in, in public services. And there, I think we do need a more sort of market-based solution to that. I mean, it's no coincidence that you know, public services areas where typically you have a, a sort of a lack of competition, you know, heavily unionized, uh, very slow to adopt new technology. Um, so I think a more sort of private sector mentality in public services will be a good thing. Uh, and the other absolutely essential thing is to keep labour markets as as flexible as possible. And again, the the shift seems to be in the opposite direction at the moment. You know, both both um, conserv- current Conservative government and, and Labour look like they're going to increasingly regulate the labour market, you know, higher minimum wages, um, restrictions on the type of contracts that people can enter into, those sorts of things. Um, and anything that holds back flexibility in the labour market is, is bad for productivity as well. So it, it's a mix of things. So relentless focus on more investment, um, on improving public services productivity, and keeping labour markets as flexible and dynamic as possible. Well, thank you, Julian Jessup, uh, for, for coming on to the podcast today. Uh, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Julian is an economics fellow at the IEA. Um, if you're interested in following his work, he is... Julian's Twitter account uh, is, or X account, is a constant source of, of useful resources. And if you're interested in staying up to date with the IEA, uh, please just visit iea.org.uk.